Uh, this morning, let's open our Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 20. We looked at the first 16 verses last Sunday morning. Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter, hopefully. Um, and the title of this morning's message is To Serve or Be Served. That's the question. And obviously that's a quip from Hamlet's uh, third act in the first scene, I believe it was. Act three, first scene. <laughs> Uh, to be or not to be, but to serve or to be served, and that's the question. And that's the question that I believe the Lord is uh, speaking to his disciples about, and also, uh, in a roundabout way, also to us as well. But let's read verses 17, 17 down through 28. Notice what it says. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem... He took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, and he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. And so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Very interesting passage, isn't it? As we look at this, and as we have already read, this is certainly looking, um, this is about roughly a week before Jesus would be arrested and crucified. And Jesus here is looking, um, what, what he's doing is he is preparing his disciples for not only what he would experience here shortly, but also what they would experience and face in Jerusalem. But notice he would also challenge them on their attitude towards service in the kingdom. Isn't serving Jesus a great privilege? It is. It's, it's a great privilege, uh, pri- privilege. Privilege. And we serve him, why? We, we, do we serve him because um, we're trying to make something up to him? Or do we serve him because we love him? We serve him, right? Because we love him, not so that we can get some kind of advantage or notoriety. We serve him not even to balance the scales for all that he's done for us because we cannot even that balance. We can't square up the balance for all the things that he's done for us. We shouldn't even attempt to because we will forever be indebted to him no matter what we do. And so everything we do, let it, we need to do it because of just love for what he has done for us. I mean, he saved our soul, folks. 
And not only that, but he's given us a life now in this earth that is, is, is something joyous, isn't it? I mean, when the Spirit of God comes in you and you have this hope of salvation and you have the Spirit of God in you and then you know it, everything changes. And it ought to. And it puts a spring in your step. It gives you the, the boldness to stand up to a world that hates God and that hates Christ and hates you, to be honest with you. And he gives us that great love and that great assurance of salvation. And there's nothing in the world like that. Honestly, all the money in the world, they can have it. Because you know what, you know what I understand? Uh, what I'm understanding is that the more finances I have, which not usually that much, but when I do, whenever there's a surplus, I get nervous. I really do. And it's never a good thing. Think of the trouble you would get into if somebody just dropped a million dollars in cash on your doorstep. What would you do with it? You'd probably go shopping and then you'd fight over who gets what and how much each person in the family gets. And then there's no peace in that. There's no joy in that. But what he gives is so much better. Because I can go to bed with a clear conscience. I can go to bed knowing that my account has been paid in full already. Already. As a default, my account has been paid. I'll never see death, eternal damnation because of him. And I've put my faith and trust in him. Have you put your faith and trust in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ? If you have, you know the peace that I'm talking about. And if you're not experiencing this peace, it's not because God is at fault. It's usually us. In fact, it always is us, actually. It's because we're not getting under the spout where the blessings come out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Living in a way, being in prayer, being in the Word, fellowshipping, and abiding in Christ. When we abide in Christ, we have the most rich and wonderful life that all the money in the world can't give. It really can't. And I'm, I'm beginning to understand that now. I'm just happy just to be, you know, I mean, I'm happy just to be in this place where I'm not poor, I'm not rich, right somewhere, you know, there, and I'm happy. The bills are paid and I'm being provided for. There's such great peace in that. And so Jesus is speaking to them about this, about this idea of the greatness of serving and, and what it's really all about. So let's go back to verse 17. It says, Jesus going up to Jerusalem, and this would be the last time before his crucifixion that Jesus would go to Jerusalem. In the parallel account of this passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it tells us that when they went up the road to, from, uh, to Jerusalem, that the disciples, they were, uh, they were amazed and they were also afraid. They were amazed and also afraid. And remember that wherever you are in Israel, when you go up to Jerusalem, you're going up because the elevation is always going up. And because the city rests on a mountain range called Moriah. It's a mountain range. There's a range of mountains called Moriah, the mountains of Moriah. And Jerusalem is at the top of one of those mountain ranges. And so wherever you go, it doesn't matter from north to south, you'll notice in your Bibles, you know, Jesus is up in the north part of Israel, but then it says, then he went up to Jerusalem. It's like, wait a minute, I thought north was up. No, up in elevation. It's on a hill. It's beautiful. And it says that he took his 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, notice, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed. Underline that. 
to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And remember again that Jesus knew what awaited him. He knew what was coming, and although he didn't look forward to the pain, he didn't look forward to the suffering, and much less the separation for a time from his father, it was his mission, right? It was his mission. And what does it tell us in Hebrews chapter 12? That for the joy that was set before him, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Luke's gospel, it says that he steadfastly set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. It was his mission. Nothing would deter him from it. Nobody would get in his way. He He had a date with his destiny. And he knew exactly what he was going to do and why he was doing it. And he wasn't a helpless martyr. Don't ever let anybody say, well, he was just this poor martyr who got killed. And, you know, Christianity is just, oh, it's such a mess. And, you know, our martyr's dead and we might as well fold up and go home. No. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't a martyr at all. In fact, he, what, did he, what did he say to us? It says in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said these words. He says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So martyrs don't do that. Martyrs are taken and killed against their will. But Jesus was not taken against his will. In fact, he was very willing. He was very willing. So they they were going up, and Jesus told them this. And notice in verse 19, to deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day to rise again. Yes, to mock and crucify. It tells us in Matthew 26 that they spat on his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who was the one who struck you? Mocking him. And then in Matthew 27, they scourged him with a cat of nine tails. We'll look more at this when we get into the crucifixion in weeks ahead. But it says that they released Barabbas to them. And when they had scourged him with a Roman flagellum, Jesus was delivered to be crucified. And the soldiers and the governors took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted the crown of thorns on his head, and they, um, and they took a reed and put it in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him again, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and spitting on him. And then finally, he's leading him away to be crucified. Yes, they did all of these things. But let me share with you that God would have the last word. (laughs) Hallelujah, right? God always has the last word. Men, you can do whatever you want. When when God speaks, everyone's going to... It's like E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody... No, when God speaks, everyone will listen, whether they want to or not. They will bow their knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the great potentate of all of creation. Hallelujah, praise his name forever, right? But Jesus, he would have the last word because he would rise and and defeat death and Hades and hell and everything in it. Jesus, the good shepherd, and what is he doing here by telling his disciples these things? He's preparing them. He's preparing them for what's coming. And, And this whole idea in Psalm 23, remember where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. That's what a good shepherd does. He he goes before the sheep and he looks in the pasture. He looks for the poisonous plants and the things that the sheep might eat that might hurt them. He makes sure there's a plenty uh, uh, a water supply that's plentiful. He's looking. He's caring for those sheep. 
And Jesus now is doing the same with his disciples. He's going to tell them. And sheep, if you, if you know anything about sheep, they won't lie down unless they feel safe and comfortable. If you see a bunch of sheep in a pasture and they're laying down, it's because the shepherd has made them feel comfortable. They feel free from predators. They know the shepherd's there with his rod and his staff. They've been fed, and usually that's what happens when we eat, right? We sleep like a bunch of old men, right? Have a big, like men's day. When, this Saturday, we're going to eat, and then we're going to, you know, take a nap. That's right. But there were two other times that Jesus spoke this very same thing to them. And, and, and Jesus doesn't waste his words when he shares these things with them. In Matthew 16, he, when Peter rebuked Jesus, because Jesus said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be mocked. And, and remember, Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. That, we will not let that happen to you. And remember, Jesus had to rebuke Peter. He didn't get it. And then later on in Matthew 17, again, you know, he says the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day he will be arise. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They, they didn't want to hear this stuff. And now he speaks to them the same thing again. They weren't getting it. And Jesus wouldn't have mentioned it three times by now if he didn't think it was necessary. He did it because it was necessary. Do you need to hear sometimes things more than once? I do. So then the mother of, and now we get into a whole different section here, verses 20 through 28, the mother of Zebedee's sons, who we know is uh, John and James, James and John, and their mother was uh, there, and they were the sons of Zebedee, who was a fisherman. Their dad was a fisherman, just like these two young men were. And so the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, with her sons, okay, kneeling down and asking something from him. And Mark's gospel tells us that James and John and their mother approached Jesus to ask this question. And, and so it doesn't really matter whether it was the, the mother or the, the, the two sons. They were all in on it together. They've all been talking about it, conspiring. Hey, let's go ask Jesus. Who, you know, if we can say, Mom, you do it. And so she's like, oh, okay, my boys, my blessed boys, I'll do anything for you. And so... She goes and she kneels before Jesus, like a good mother would. Let my sons be on your, you know, your right hand and on your left. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said, grant that these two sons may sit on your, on your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. And the kingdom that is being spoken of here is the one that we have been talking about for some time. The millennial reign. The thousand year reign of Christ, yet future to us today. Right, Just a quick timeline. When the church is removed at the rapture, we know that there's a seven-year tribulation period. The church is removed, taken up in our glorified bodies. The seven-year tribulation occurs, and then we come back with Jesus to the earth at his second coming. And at the beginning of that, there's Armageddon. We talk about that war. And then he's going to begin his thousand-year reign, known as the millennial reign of Christ. These things, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, have been talking about for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years. They've been talking about this kingdom of God where things would be renewed, the curse would be removed, and things would be quite a bit different than what we see. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. <laughs> One king on the throne. Over all. I like that. So she wants him to have her sons. And this was a rather cheeky thing for her to ask Jesus. 
Almost as cheeky as when the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember that in Matthew 18, verse 1? They asked, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If I were Jesus, I probably would have said, um, who are you looking at, guys? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> but you know, he was so much more gracious than that. But who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus. He always is, always has been. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. And he says, and you, and notice this word, you don't know it in, the, in our English, but you, you know in context, and you'll see why in a minute, but this is plural. So the mother evidently is speaking, and he says, you do not know what you ask. And then he says, and you, and he's speaking to all three of them now, because you is plural there. And you, are you able, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And notice, they said to him, we are able. And the cup that is being referred to here is the cup of suffering that Jesus would endure on the cross. Not only on the cross, but even in the flogging and the, and the interrogation and all of these horrible things that shouldn't have happened. There were so many laws being broken when he was uh, arraigned and arrested and, and, and going through all of this. So many laws were broken. It was a kangaroo court. Have you heard of that? Yeah. It was happening. But this cup is the cup of suffering. And they too would endure this cup of suffering. And the baptism that he's referring to, the word baptizmo, literally means to be submerged, to be put under. And that happened when Jesus was put into the grave. He would die, but he would rise the third day. And so Jesus is saying, you all will suffer the cup that I am about to suffer, and you will also be baptized with the baptism that I've been baptized with. You're going to go through the same thing, guys. You're going to be martyred. We know that James would be killed by the sword by Herod Agrippa, and John would die a martyr's death, but the details surrounding his death are a little bit fuzzy, so we really don't know for sure. But in verse 23, he said to them, you will indeed drink the, my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those by whom it is prepared by my Father. So these are positions that God the Father are going, is going to give. And he knows who those positions are for. And when the ten heard it, verse 24, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And why were the ten displeased? It was because the very same thing was on their mind at all. They just didn't have the guts to come up and ask Jesus. They were all looking for favor and position. And doesn't that encourage you? Because these are the men that Jesus picked out. It was like he was going through a field and there's all these ripe, you know, uh, Peaches on the tree. Don't you love peaches in July and August? And he would just go and he would go, I want that one, I want that one, and I want that one. And he knew exactly what he was getting when he chose them. And every one of them had issues and problems. Does that sound like anybody in this room? No. Sounds like me. And did he choose you too? That's how loving and gracious he is. He's not worried about your mess. Come with him with your mess. Don't hide it from him. You can't hide it from him. Just come to him. Be who you are and let him change you. That's his job. 
Just be willing to sit on the wheel and let him spin you and mold and mold you into the thing that he wants to mold you into. Stop trying to fix yourself up and make yourself better so that you're somehow worthy to be on the, you know, to be used. Well, I've done all these good things, Lord. You know, I, I'm after all a nice guy. I dress nice and I tithe a thousand dollars a week. And if you do do that, make sure you're coming to this church. The agape box is right over there on the wall. I'm, just kidding, just kidding. Don't hit me. But you know what? That, 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 come to him with your mess. Don't worry about anything else. But they were displeased because they were thinking the same thing. And it's not the first time that the disciples were jockeying for position for the kingdom. The truth is, if we were there with them, many of us would fall into the same thing. And, and that's the honest truth. See, you and I have the perspective of being uh, you know, you know, 2,000 years removed from these events. But if we were there, see, you and I have heard so much about the Bible. These guys, as they were going through it, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was happening to you. It's you and I, if you've been a Christian, it's so familiar to us. But they had no clue whatsoever. Everything was new. And this business about you going to the cross and dying, and they're like, wait, what about the kingdom? We can't have a kingdom without a king. And that's what they're thinking. And they're nervous. They're afraid. They're scared. And they're kind of wondering, well, if, if you're going to be crucified, then one of us is going to be the head honcho. Who's it going to be? Well, me, of course, right? And James and John and, and Peter, they're all, you know, jockeying for position. But it wasn't the first time. You know, isn't it true that it's supernatural? It's a supernatural work of God, of the Spirit of God, for us not to be selfish, greedy, self-centered, and self-seeking. Naturally, we are all those things. It's horrible. It's ugly. Many of you know this. I know it of myself. Apart from Christ, that's what I am. And even in Christ, I can get like that sometimes. But there were instances in the scripture where there was a competitive spirit and this jockeying of position. We see the first one in, in Matthew chapter 26, where uh, Jesus, remember, um, said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been risen, I will go before you to Galilee. And remember what Peter said. <laughs> he says, Even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I will never be made to stumble because I am not like these guys. I'm on a higher level. Haven't you gotten the memo? I'm a little bit better than the rest of the guy. Actually, quite a bit. And you should notice this. Right? Jockeying for position. I'm better than you. In Mark 9, he came to Capernaum and when he was in the house... He asked them, what was, it, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, the last, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So the way in the kingdom, and this is where we're getting into now, the way up in the kingdom of heaven is actually down. It's just the opposite from what we see in the world. And this is exactly what John the Baptist said. I must decrease so that he might increase. I remember when I first came to Calvary Chapel of Rochester in 1995, 
And I love being here. And Kathy was actually, she brought me here for the first time on Good Friday of 1995. And, um, and after a while, I wanted to serve. And I wasn't given the exciting things to do, like teaching a Bible study. Rather, uh, I was given a broom. And I was given a mop. And I was given a toilet brush. And I was handed a trash bag to take out to the dumpster. And I learned to serve. And that's what I did for years. Sometimes I still do it. You know, because it's not beneath me to serve, to do those menial things, to do even to do the stuff that's really ugly, like sometimes the diapers in the nursing mom's room. Let me tell you, if you want to serve the Lord, start there. And if it doesn't... (laughs) But the leaders and the pastors in this church are all men who have consistently done this over the years. And this is something that can be caught. It's something that I believe is caught. It's been said that ministry is not taught, but it's caught. I mean, yes, it is taught, but it's mainly caught, in meaning you catch it, you get it, you do it, and you don't complain that nobody else is helping you. You do it simply because you love Jesus. And if you desire to be a leader in the church, don't wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder or ask you to teach a Bible study. The best thing to do is grab and watch what other people are doing and say, hey, can I help? Make the job easier. Instead of one person wiping off the tables, you can have two or three. Instead of one person you know, sweeping the floor, there could be two. Instead of one person doing all of the bathrooms, and there's like 11 bathrooms in this place, or nine, I think, maybe, do, maybe two people do it. Or maybe you see something, you walk inside the front door and you see over in the corner by the, by the doors, you see all the, all the spider webs and the junk and that. Maybe come in a, a, a half hour sometime during the week and just spend a half hour and say, hey, can I do something? Little things like that God takes notice of. Nobody may see it, and that's okay, because what he sees in secret, he will, will reward you openly. And if he desires to promote you, he will do it in his due time. In Timothy, it says, uh, speaking of the qualifications of of a bishop or an overseer, it speaks that, uh, there's a lot of things it says, but it says, not somebody who is a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, they fall into the same condemnation of the devil. But let these also, and then he goes on and talks about deacons as well, about let these also first be tested, lest they... Uh, then let them serve as deacons. You know, to, to do the menial task, are you willing to do a menial task? I mean, even in your own home, are you willing to take out the trash? Or does it always have to be your wife? Is she always asking you to do this? It's like you're, it's too beneath you. Listen, there's nothing that's beneath any of us. We ought to be willing to do anything if our hearts are right. But if you think you're something and you've got much more to offer... You may not be called on it because you're not willing to do the very small thing, the thing that nobody wants to do. And I've seen that being here for almost 30 years. There were times where I didn't want to do that, and the Lord challenged me. He's like, well, would you do it for me? I think I told you the story. I don't need to rehash it. But there was a moment where I, I, I was like, Lord, I can't do this for Jeff. I love Jeff. He's a great man. But I, I'm, just, I'm getting to the point where I'm getting a little crispy around the edges And I just don't know if I can do it for him anymore. And he's like, great. How about do it for me? And the implication was, you should have been doing it for me all along. 
not for Jeff. That was a hard lesson. I cried that day. <laughs> and it was a good thing, and he's still working on me. Yeah. But our motivation ought to be, uh, ought to be serving Christ and not just to obtain a title in the church. In the kingdom of God, we also shouldn't care about who gets the credit for things. Does it matter who led somebody to Christ? What about the countless others who have been planting that seed in that person's life and you were just the one to lead them to Christ, but there were countless people who have been planting seeds over the years and you were just the cleanup crew, you were just the contract signer, and yet you get all of the attention. And there's nothing wrong with being excited. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing more exciting than seeing somebody come to Christ. What about those others who had put in that time? In Corinthians uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? And notice what he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We have to remember that. And yet people get, you know, they get really weird when they lead somebody to Christ. I'm the one who led them. Get the camera. Can I do a selfie? We're going to post this on Instagram. And that's the one who led him to Christ. Oh, my gosh. Rather, wouldn't it just say, you know, you, you lead them to Christ and just give praise to God and get out of the way. Just get out of the way and let God. And see, the more a believer, the more a mature believer, a more mature believer, excuse me, understands this. And they'll give credit where credit is due because ultimately all the credit goes to who? Jesus. All the credit goes to him. But allow the grace of God to work in your heart that when you encounter an immature believer, and you're going to be around immature believers, everyone in this room is, is mature and immature. We're, we, we're, we're all on different levels, right? Can we live together and love each other even when somebody like an immature believer does something really dumb? Do you browbeat them? Or do you love on them and encourage them? That's what we ought to do. But our old nature wants to go, I can't believe him. Goodness gracious. We get ugly. We look like that dog. You know, like when you, yeah, have you ever seen those little chihuahuas? A chihuahua. Get down next to the face of a chihuahua when he's eating and you'll see his lips start to curl and his teeth will start. That's what people, that's what Christians look like when we are not walking the way we ought to walk. We're just nasty. We can be nasty. But what about if that immature believer takes all the credit? Let him take it. And if the Spirit allows, correct him later about it. But since the beginning, the natural, unregenerate heart of man hasn't really changed at all, has it? From the very beginning, it hasn't changed. Man will always seek to elevate himself, to seek the spotlight, take it away from others. He will, he will seek to uh, position himself better. And unfortunately, this even happens in the church among born-again believers. Instead of being happy and when someone else is going through a time of spiritual or physical blessing or, or in some Christian service that they're involved in, we can get green with envy and privately despise them in our hearts. Anybody have that happen? You don't have to say anything out loud because I know all of it's happened to all of you. It's happened to me. I'm going to be honest. And you just can't wait until their spiritual bubble bursts. Why him? Why her? Why not me? 
And then there are servants who are so filled with pride, born-again believers, they get into squabbles and fights over who is more spiritual, trying to outdo with one another. I remember of a story of two brothers out on uh, Monroe Avenue. They were out witnessing, and this was many years ago. And here are these two spirit-led guys, each with really great gifts, honestly. And they're out there amongst, you know, you know what Monroe Avenue is like. It, it's like hell, basically. I mean, you stepped into hell, and demons are all around, and, and here they are trying to minister to the unbelievers around them, and they get in a fight about doctrine. And meanwhile, the world is watching, and they're like, oh, is that what the church is? And these guys are almost went to blows over something stupid. And I almost wonder if, if you know, the Lord was tempted to just peer down through the clouds and say, uh, move on, guys. Move on. But they get that competitive spirit. They get that, I want to be better than you. Spiritual pride is a horrible thing in the church. And it was true here with the apostles as well. It happens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writing, he says, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. And this was a happening church in the beginning, and, and they, but they were carnal. And he says, I, can't, I couldn't speak to you. I had to, um, you're carnal, and, 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 and I fed you with milk, and not with solid food, but for until now you were not able to receive it. And now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For why are there still envy and strife and divisions among you? Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And unfortunately, that can happen in a church. It happens. But if we're being led by the Spirit of God and He has a hold on your life, certain things in your life ought to be leaving and certain things ought to be you're putting on certain things and you're taking off other things, right? In Galatians, it tells that, you know, it talks about the works of the flesh. We're not going to go through all of them, but, but it says, so put off these works of the flesh, you know, the horrible things like idolatry and sorcery, which is like pharmacia, drug abuse, hatred, contentions, jealousies, all this ugly stuff. He says, put away all that stuff, take it off, put it off, put on the new man in Christ, that you might be filled with the Spirit of God and that you'd have the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yes, even self-control. But verse 25, back in our passage, he says, but Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know not what, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The idea is to exercise dominion over or to control or to subjugate. That's literally what it means. The, Lord, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise or have full privilege over authority over them. And this is what we see in the world today. We see our town officials. They're under the authority of the county officials who are under uh, authority of the state officials who are under the authority of the federal officials and then finally to the president of the United States. That's the order of things. And there are many other stratums that are, you know, of different hierarchies of, of power. And this is the way it is. But he said in verse 26, yet it sh shall not be so among you. It's got to be different, guys. And whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And this word servant is the same word that we get when Paul was talking about deacons. Literally, it was tra it's translated from the Greek into English, deacons. 
to be a servant. If you want to be great, learn to be a servant. And he goes on in verse 27, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Okay, now this is a whole different word. You've heard of this word before. It's called doulos. Doulos. It is a word that literally means someone who gives himself up to another's will, whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing the cause among men. In other words, somebody who is devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. Totally devoted to somebody else. Now, slavery in the Jewish time wasn't like what we've had in America. What we've had in America in our, in our early foundings is horrible. No excuse for any of that nonsense. It was horrible. There's no doubt about it. But these people who were doulos or slaves, they, they were willing to do it. It wasn't like they were forced. It's a big difference. Do you, do you follow? One is forced. The other one is like, no, I love you so much and you've treated me so well. I want, to be, I want to serve you forever. I want to serve you forever. And that's what the word literally means. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we can read it. It says uh, in Deuteronomy 15, let me read it to you. It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine press." From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and there they were actually under forced slavery. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens, if it happens that this Hebrew slave or doulos comes to you and says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you, do you see the difference? He loves to be there. He's happy doing what he's doing. He, he's never had it so good, actually. He's working. He's, he's getting his needs taken care of, his family. And he says, if the person comes to you and says, I, I love you and I don't want to be parted from you, let me stay with you. And then it says, then you shall take an awl or a metal piece and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. So they would put it through his left ear. And that means that they were a doulos, they were a slave, but not slave in the way you and I think of it, or even in the ugly framing of it, okay? Do you follow? A willing person. And now they are a doulos. They're doing it out of the, the love of their heart. I'm happy here, I don't want to leave. You've been good to me, master. And I'm happy to do it. That's what it's referring to. And it's interesting that Paul the Apostle, uh, the Apostle Peter, James, and Jude all refer to themselves as doulos. You'll see these references up on the screen. Romans 1, James 1, Peter, 2 Peter 1, Jude 1. They all said the same thing, something along the lines of James, a bondservant, or literally a doulos of Jesus Christ. Peter said, Simon Peter, a bondservant, or a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude said, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You got the idea? They each willingly put themselves in that place where like, put the all through my ear. I'm yours forever because you've been so good to me. I will be your servant forever. And see, that is wonderful when that happens. God doesn't have a problem with that. 
God has a problem when people hurt one another and they beat them. That has never been right and it never, it never will be right. But there were places in, in Israel when you had a debt to pay, you would pay the debt through your service to them. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but when you pay your rent, you're paying to the bank. You're a servant. When you pay your, your taxes, what are you doing? And you pay your credit card. That's what you're doing. You're, you're a slave. And most of us are like, I'm okay with that. Because <laughs> I've got to pay my debt. And so I'm willing to do it and not grumble. I'm going to pay you back. But I think the doulos, the term, actually goes a little bit further because you may not like your credit card company because they charge you 25% interest, but you may not like them, but you know what? When, when you get to a point in the attitude of your heart that you can be a doulos wherever you're at, on your work site, at your home, be a doulos. Be someone who is willing to do it just for the glory of God, just because it's the right thing. And is it going to appeal to the flesh? It never will. You'll never be happy in the flesh in that regard. There's a really wonderful um, saying that uh, John Walvoord, a, a really wonderful man of God and Bible scholar teacher, he says, the road to privilege authority is often paved with lowly service. And see, that is the road that you and I are on, friends. When we serve, we serve in those lowly things but they're not lowly to God. You may think they're lowly. You may think that they're beneath you, but they're actually the right thing for you to do, to do the very menial things, to be willing to do those things that nobody wants to do, and to do it with a right heart. This is why it's always good to lead by example and not just lording it over people. You know, that, that's something we don't do here. We don't lord it over on anybody. I don't like anybody serving in this ministry that is unhappy. If you're not happy serving, then stop. If you're grumbling inside all the time, then stop. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying you got to get right. you got to spend time with the Lord because it's from that time with Him, that fellowship with Him, out of that, out of that great gratitude of your own heart and that time with Him, that is where your service comes from. You can't do it the other way around. It just doesn't work. You'll get angry. And you'll get bitter and you'll get nasty and then you'll start yelling at people. That's no way to be. But what is the legacy, part of the legacy that Jesus left us? As the good shepherd, he went before us. He showed us how to live. And basically, he said, do what I do. He didn't do, um, uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to to their works, for they say and do not do. Do you see what happens? They weren't good examples at all. They would tell people to do stuff, but they wouldn't do it themselves. But Jesus was quite different, wasn't he? When he said to do something, he says, let me show you how it's done. Let me go out and let me walk with you in it. I'm not going to hide behind a desk somewhere. No, we're going to get out and we're going to get our hands dirty together in it. We're going to go out together, and that's what he did. In fact, he went, he did the ultimate God, Almighty God, took upon himself the form of a servant, and he wasn't upset about that, and, and he went to the cross. He humbled himself and became sin and death for us, sin for us, and he atoned for it there. 
But Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. And when he said that, he wasn't just speaking about a physical direction or motion. In other words, follow me physically. No, it was more than that. It was about follow me in my teaching, in my character and example. Remember in John chapter 13, as Jesus was in the upper room the night before he was uh, arrested, and remember, Jesus uh, put a towel on himself and rolled, you know, took off his uh, outer uh, cloak and he rolled up his you know, shirt and he got out a towel and a basin of water and he started washing the disciples' feet. Washing them. And then he comes to Peter. And he came to Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said, what I'm doing, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Lord. Because Peter knew he should have been the one washing the feet. He was actually, uh, I don't have time to show you this, but at the, in the triclinium that night, he was actually over on this side. You know, and He was over on this side of the triclinium, which means he was the servant. And Jesus placed him there. He was the one that should have been washing feet, but he wasn't. But Jesus got up and he did this lowly task. And, and, then, and then Jesus answered, if, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. And then he says, Lord, well, not only my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to, be washed, needs only to wash his feet, but is, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Obviously speaking of Judas. But then he, but, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and he sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you what? An example. And see, this is where all the gurus in the world fall short. There's a lot of gurus saying, do what I say. Give this, do this, make sure you do this. Go, go through all these motions, but I'm going to sit back on my high hill in the lotus position with some incense. And I'm going to wait for you pawns to bring the spoils to me because I'm worthy, but you're not. So do all the work for me, my little Klingons, right? My little minions. And Jesus says, oh, no, I'm going out and I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you the example. I'm going to show you the example. And this is how you ought to live. See, that's the difference between Jesus and everybody else. Who is your God? Is your God willing to do that, or is your God demand that you walk on glass, you know, in Guadalupe, and you know, in, in, in pieces of glass, and you're all bloody a mess, and you're like, <laughs> you know, trying to make it there before anybody else, and if you're not there on time, you know, all bets are off, you don't get the blessing. I mean, are you serious? Is that your God? No, he went to Calvary alone and did it for you and me. Give him praise. Lord you be praised and glorified. Jesus goes on and he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, did not come to be served, excuse me, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That phrase is so intense. And why do I say that? The first part of this verse affirms Jesus' pre-existence. Do you see that? The Son of Man came to the earth. That means that he existed before he came. So in this verse, you not only have a declaration of his preexistence, but for the first time in the Gospels, for the first time, 
You also see him mentioning the reason for his death. He told them that he was going to go to the cross, but that he would rise again for the third day. But why do you have to go to the cross? Right here is the first time he says it. And he says it, to give his life a ransom for many Do you see what was happening? All along, Jesus was telling them, now they're about ready to, they're right down there at the base of the the, the Jordan Valley. And as you go up into, uh, up up, um, west from the Jordan Valley, you've got Jericho on your right hand side. And that's where they are at right now. And they're about ready to walk this meandering road, about 13 to 15 miles, I think, up to Jerusalem, up on the hill. And they're about ready to walk up. And he says, and this would be the last time he would walk up. And now he gives them a little bit more information. And thank God. Because they had heard about it before. But now there's a little bit more information. Oh, thank you, God. I didn't quite get it. And I'm not sure that they really still got it yet. But he told them, I'm giving my life a ransom for many. That's the reason. And that ought to bring them right back to the Old Testament prophets. Certainly Isaiah 53. Certainly, you know, uh, Genesis 22 when Abraham offered up Isaac and and the picture that that was and all of these things should be start flooding in. Now let's finish this. uh, Just bear with me. Um, We're almost done here, but I want to finish this chapter today. Um, Notice that um, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed them. Now this place in Jericho and I kind of described it to you just a moment ago, but basically the Jordan Valley is right in the center, and here's the, the, at the south, the Dead Sea. If you were to continue to go north, you'd ultimately run into the Sea of Galilee. But right here is uh, on the uh, eastern shore of the, eastern side, excuse me, of the Jordan River was where the uh, Israelites many years ago had crossed over that into Jericho. Jericho is right here. And today, there is a highway, Highway 90, believe it or not, goes all the way down from the Galilee, down the Jordan Valley, and then there's a a road right here that takes you right by Jericho, and it's still there today. The same road that Jesus was walking up, it's all paved now. It's like a six-lane expressway going up to Jerusalem. But underneath that stone and asphalt was that original road that he walked up, that he's walking up right now. And it has to be the same way because they're meandering in between these mountains and and climbing and climbing and climbing. And so that's what's happening. They're, They're on this road. They're right there by Jericho when all of this is happening. And so, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord. And, and, and this word Lord is Kyrios. It means uh, a title for God. It's a title of the Messiah. And they said, Son of David, oh, have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now, I would encourage you to take a look at these two uh, verses. You might want to write them down because this phrase, Son of David, is a messianic title. And if you go and you read these two passages, Psalm 110, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, you'll understand why this is a messianic promise. It's a messianic title given to Jesus. But we won't go there for now for the sake of time. 
Because Jesus was not only David's son, meaning a descendant of David, but he was also David's Lord, the one who preexisted before David would even be born. And so these physically blind men here have more spiritual insight than the leaders of Jerusalem, the ones who are supposed to be the, the big kahunas, you know, the big guys, the big shots. These blind men physically had more spiritual insight. Didn't we sing the song this morning? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. That was on purpose. Because they had sight, but they didn't have a sight in their heart. They hadn't, didn't have eyes of faith. Do you have eyes of faith this morning? Or is it just only what you see? There's so much more to life than what we can see with our very naked eyes. There's so much more going on, and as a believer in Christ, when the Spirit of God indwells you, He gives you, He opens up that realm that you can't even possibly understand. He doesn't show it to you completely, but He gives you a, 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 a He makes you aware of it. Anybody experience experience spiritual attack or spiritual warfare? Does that ring a bell? You're becoming acquainted with this realm because there are enemies that hate you and that hate me. And I don't like them either. But I'm focused on Jesus. I'm not going to worry about demons and wondering who's around the corner. <laughs> no, I'm going to be focused on Christ. Focus on him. Who cares about them? They are defeated foes. And they are powerful, don't get me wrong. But who's more powerful? Say his name. Jesus. You got it. No one like him. Let it be done. <laughs> right? He is King of kings, Lord of lords. No one can mess with him. That's our God. That's our king. Right? So Jesus stood still and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for them? Isn't that, don't you find that kind of funny? Two blind men come to him and he says, what, what shall I do for you? And notice that he, asked, he didn't assume that it was their eyesight. He asked them, well, there's something about this that's really wonderful. He didn't assume and goes, well, of course they want their eyesight. Well, maybe they were fine being blind, but they had another issue going on. Have you ever thought about that? that there are people that were born blind, and they get older in age, and they're like, what would you like? And people say, oh, of course they want their sight. And you're like, no. I've learned this world, how to navigate this world without it. I want something else. And he asked them the question. They had to ask what it is, that you, what, the, what, what is it that you wanted? And they, and, and they did say that our eyes may be open. That's why we sang the song. Open my eyes, open my heart, Lord. We want to see Jesus. And these men, these blind men, they were going to see Jesus for the first time. The first sight that they were going to see. Can you imagine that? The very first image that would come would be the focusing on the Son of God. Right? And Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight and notice, and then they followed him. And again, by healing these blind men, Jesus was affirming who he said he was. He affirmed that he was the Messiah. And yes, the Messiah. And why? Because the Messiah was prophesied of Isaiah when it spoke that he would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing. These things are the only things that God, that Jesus could do. And the very last miracle that he did Public, I want to say public miracle, was what he did with these two blind men. 
who had been born blind, and now they see. And they saw for the first time, and not only did they see with their eyes, they saw with their heart. God, Jesus, opened the eyes of their heart. And how do we know that? Because they knew when they were still blind, what did they say to him? O Lord, O Kyrios, son of David. They knew who he was before their eyes, their physical eyes were even open. Their heart was already open. They already knew who he was. And that's why they were calling upon him, because they knew that he could do it. And behold, he did. The very last public miracle, public miracle, and I say public because you know he put Malchus's ear back on after he cut after Peter cut it off, but that was more like a private thing. But his last public miracle was he's given sight to these men, and I love that. And Jesus called the Pharisees blind leaders. These were the guys who wore the nice suits, the nicest clothing from you know New Orleans, you know the high fluting stuff, the high thread count. And what did Jesus say to them? He says, woe to you, blind guides, you Pharisees. You should have known better. These blind men know me before they even received their sight. And now they've got sight and they're following me. And, and he, but he says to the religious leaders, he was harder on them than anybody else. He was very calm and, and very sweet to the sinner who was messed up and completely destroyed. He was very kind to them. But the religious leaders, he took them to task. And he said to them, you are blind guides, fools and blind. And then he, blind guides who strain at a, out a gnat and swallow a camel. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be also be clean. And hopefully all of this all of us in this room are seeing with the eyes, not only of our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart, with eyes of faith. Are you seeing with eyes of faith? Do you want to see with eyes of faith? Do you want to see what's really going on? As a believer in Christ, that is the only time that you're really going to have an understanding and as we grow in our relationship with Christ, he's going to whisper those things to you. He's going to reveal those things to you. Remember what John said in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he can't even enter it, but he can't see it. He can't perceive the kingdom of God unless the spirit of God is in you. So the prerequisite to seeing is being born again. And all of a sudden, this whole other realm starts to unravel for you. Little by little, time after time, and, and you're learning and growing what it's all about. And isn't it such a joy to know that there are angels all around us? Hebrews speaks of these angels that take care of us, watch over us. Aren't you glad that God cares? And that he loves you? And so as a result of that, all that he's done, what, what does that make me want to do? It makes me want to serve him. And that's a very natural, a very normal response to someone who has given you something that you could never repay. I could never earn my salvation. And when we're in his presence for a million years, do you understand? We're still going to be completely undone. We're going to be completely undone because we will never be able to completely understand the mind and the heart of God because if we did, then we would be him. And so we are, he's going to be constantly unraveling all of this as time goes on into, into eternity. And every day is going to be fresh and new. 
And so the challenge for you and I is, are, are you, will you serve him? And, and I'm not trying to get servants necessarily in the church. I mean, if the Lord puts that on your heart, that's wonderful. But I'm talking about everywhere else in your life, in your home, guys and gals, and in your workplace. Are you willing to be a servant? Are you willing to be a doulos? Or are you just going to sit back and think, well, I earned the bread and butter, therefore I can sit on my rear end and do nothing? No, be a servant. Be a servant. Learn to be a servant. And it's not natural. Being a servant is supernatural because the flesh does not want to serve anybody. The flesh wants to serve itself and wants to be served. But Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So there's our marching orders, right? And so that's something that we have to pray about. So why don't, we, why don't we do it? Let's stand together and let's just ask the Lord to give us those hearts. Because if you're like me, I need that heart. And I always need to be recalibrated. Do you know what that means? My heart needs to be put in order again. Sort of like when you're driving your car around New York State and you hit those potholes and you have to go get an alignment on your car. Because you take the hand off the wheel and the car goes like this off the road. You need an alignment. You need to get it fixed. You need to get it squared up. See, we need, our hearts need that too. I'm like, Lord, would you fix me today? And let's pray. Father, we just ask that you'd fix us. Lord, that you would calibrate, that you would work out these. We've gotten off to the left and to the right. And Lord, we might not even know where we've gone. But God, you know where we've gone. And you know how to get us back to center again. You know how to get us back to you. And Lord, we ask that you would do that today. That you would make us servants. That you would make us these doulos. These ones who would be so thankful and grateful and, and, and be willing to go to the door and have an all put through our ear and say, we will serve you forever, God, because of all that you've done. Lord, you've been so good to us. You've been so faithful. Jesus, you are amazing. You have done it all. And Lord, we exalt you this morning. And I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters and myself included. Lord, help us to be those servants. And set us on fire again. Help us to put away all the junk, all the stuff. And focus on you again, front and center, right in front of us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.